if you want to be something, just be it, right? Just call yourself that thing and psychologically you'll just do the work. You are now tuned in to Misi Muse Unplugged, a podcast for go-getters on their journey to greatness. Unlock the secrets to your success through insights, inspiration, and education. Get ready to level up with your host, author and consultant, Christy Lindor. Hey, my go-getters. Welcome to the Misi Muse Unplugged podcast show. I'm your host, Christy Lindor. Thrilled to be bringing you episode nine. So today we are going to talk a little bit about how to feel successful when you feel like a failure. I find at times that when we are on a journey to greatness, there are a lot more lumps (laughs) than there are wins. However, I think people, especially if you're a go-getter, you're more than likely than not, you are resilient, you're hardworking, you may be resourceful and being able to deal with challenges. But there's certain times where you may be feeling like a failure and that just starts to create a spiral. And so I wanna talk a little bit about how to prevent that spiral and how to really keep your mind in the right direction, particularly when the going gets tough. Today, we're also going to have a chance to connect with Jason Andrew. He's our guest in today's show, and I'll talk a little bit about Andrew and his amazing journey to greatness in a second. But when we're feeling like a failure, it could be for a number of different reasons, whether it's it's legitimate or not. Once you're in that space, you're in that space. And I think what most people sometimes forget, especially when you're in the thick of it, right, is that failing is part of the journey that leads to success. I actually believe the more you fail, the closer you are to being successful. In the social media world that we live in today, people don't talk about failures. People talk more about their successes and look at me and I'm doing so great. But Failing is part of life. And in order to be successful, you had to have failures. I've mentioned in past episodes, for every one success that someone may see that I've had publicly, I may have had 10 plus failures in the background that's not on display that I've experienced in some varying levels, right? Some of them really, really crushing and others more lighter than not. But I think the key is, is to accept that If you are in a moment of failure, and again, failure is also beauty. The definition is really in the eye of the beholder. So what you may consider a failure may not really be a failure by average person standards, but we're go-getters. We're going to aim high, aim big, do big things. And so everything that's kind of a failure feels amplified, I think, sometimes. But I think if you accept the fact that failure comes and you are in the throes of it, That's actually the right time to take a step back, to really pause and reflect. And it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to rethink how you may be doing something. It's an opportunity to reinvent yourself. I call it a signpost, if you will. And I think if you lean into failure, you will be able to create magic out of it. And that's the best way that I can really describe that. I think about go-getters, some of the failures that I've had. And if it wasn't for those failures or what I deemed as a failure at that time in my life, 
I may not be where I am today. I've mentioned in the past how I ended up creating the forgiveness model for my second book. It was the, because of a failure. I did not get a promotion that I've worked extremely hard for. It was actually in that moment of not getting that promotion. I not only refined this forgiveness technique, but that's actually what's kicked off me writing my first book, me starting to do speaking engagements. That actually kicked off everything that's been happening in my life and completely changed my trajectory. So I think it's really important to understand that, surrender to it, accept it, and figure out ways to pivot and lean into failure. And again, I think every time if there is a failure, you have an opportunity to turn it into a success. It's all about perspective at the end of the day. So with that, our guest on today's show is no stranger to being able to feel successful in the face of failure. So Jason Andrew, he is a go-getter based out of Australia. So a little bit about Jason, he is co-founder of SBO Financial. He's a chartered accountant, like I mentioned, based in the Australia area. He's also the author of a book called Stark Naked Numbers. And I had a chance to virtually meet and connect with Jason. We both were part of the uh, Seth Godin's Alt MBA program. And that's where I found out about Jason and all the great things that he's doing. But what was interesting is that I've been following Jason on LinkedIn for quite some time. And I'll put the links in the show notes where you can check him out yourself. But he has a really unconventional way of thinking and talking about finances and talking about accounting that I've actually never really seen. And I've been around a lot of accountants. You know, I spent most of my career in big four consulting houses. And so I've, I've met a lot of accountants, but he has such a unique way that I always look forward to his LinkedIn post. And I, I signed up for his mailing list and looking forward to reading his book. So here's Jason talking about his journey to greatness, as well as his perspectives on how to feel successful when you may be feeling like a failure. You're listening to the Meesey Muse Unplugged podcast. We'll be right back after the break. Several years ago, I was passed over for a promotion at my job. Instead of wallowing in my circumstances, that evening I decided to redirect my energy using a forgiveness technique I had casually created over the years. What happened over the next 15 months was an absolute life-changing breakthrough. So I decided to put it to the test. I shared the technique with a couple of friends and they too began to see major shifts at work. That's when I decided to formalize my forgiveness model into a book. Hi, I'm Christy Lindor. I've discovered that forgiveness used as an applied strategic skill in the workplace can shift your career to the next level. You can explore this concept in my new book, Release, Use the Power of Forgiveness to Get Unstuck and Thrive in Your Career. Order it now on Amazon or learn more at www.releasethebook.com. Well, Jason, welcome to the Misi Muse Unplugged. How are you doing today? I'm really well, Christy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So Jason, what part of the world are you currently sitting in? I currently is 7 a.m. on the Saturday morning in Brisbane, Australia. Nice. What's the weather like right now there? Well, it's the middle of winter and today will probably hit 20 degrees, which is 30 something Fahrenheit. But it's warm. We're one of the, probably one of the warmer winters in, in Australia and probably globally as well. So. Nice, nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm like 
sweltering in Boston, Massachusetts. It's like, it's literally, we're going through like a heat wave right now. And it's like literally like a hundred degrees. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. You know, sometimes you have fans just on social media and you don't know that, but I'm actually a big fan of yours, Jason. Oh. I follow you on LinkedIn. I know we did old MBA program together, but I think you're doing amazing work around finance and really disrupting different ways that people think about it. So I'm, I'm glad that you've got a chance to talk to us today. So you know, before we go into your book, Start Naked Financials, maybe just tell us a little bit about your work and what are you really passionate about? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a chartered accountant by background. So that's equivalent of, a, I guess, a CPA in the US. And yeah, so I cut my teeth in you know, global accounting firms, in private clients and, and corporate advisory. About five years ago, working with a lot of growing businesses, probably higher growth business in the, in the early to mid market size of their journey. So probably anywhere between zero revenue to 50 or $100 million of revenue. I really started to work with a lot of companies and founders and, and boards. And there's one thing that I found quite interesting is that irrespective of the perceived success of the business, there was a really varying degree of financial literacy, right? So when it came down to talking about the numbers and talking about the growth levers in the businesses, there was never really a correlation to, I guess, the success of the company and, and if they knew their numbers or not. And it was, it was a really strange journey because you'd work with what I would see as really smart, successful people and entrepreneurs who I thought, oh, I mean, they must really know what their gross margins are for their products. But when you have these conversations, I had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, and vice versa, you might meet some businesses that are struggling and the CEOs or founders of these companies were actually really new to numbers. So it was really interesting to understand that financial literacy was a big problem and it was not really correlated to outside success factors of what it takes to run a business. And so that was a, an observation that I was, was really quite interested in. It was probably a, a, something that we wanted to tackle. So yeah, start my business uh, five years after that, uh, after my career to really focus on helping entrepreneurs understand their numbers. And that really started with getting their accounting right and then moving into kind of education products as well. Yeah. Was there like a moment in that journey that you said, you know what, I really think it, this is a feasible model? Like, and maybe tell us, did you initially have to find clients or did you kind of organically have a couple clients to kind of get started? Yeah, it was, it was really, really tough as you know, all of us know, starting a business. So I had the blessing from my previous employer that I could start this company whilst I was still working. And, and technically, it's in the same realm, but it wasn't a direct competition of the service lines they offered. Uh, this is an accounting firm, by the way. So they gave my blessings. Just, yeah, sure, you can start this as a side hustle, I guess. So we ran the business for 12 months. And when I say ran the business, we were just kind of getting stuff sorted and you know trying to do things in the background. And that was a really great platform to build in the background. But to be honest, you never give anything. It was not 110% focused, right? Because you're still working the crazy hours as you do as a, as a consultant. So we had the business kind of established in the background, trying to get our systems and infrastructure all developed and set up. And then there came to an inflection point in my career where there's a few things happened with the company I worked for. They just got bought out. You know, I got tapped on the shoulder by some colleagues that were jumping ship to compare the firm. And, and that was really, and there was an event which left me a position was do I go and continue the traditional path of partner in the accounting firm, I guess, in the long term, or 
why maybe want to jump ship and try to create my own vehicle. And so I did the latter after a lot of deliberation and some planning, <laughs> which I can talk about if you like to, but yeah, made the jump and ate dirt for the next two years, basically. It was not easy. <laughs> I definitely know the journey of an entrepreneur. So SBO Financial, like what are some of the services that you provide to small businesses? And are they just businesses in Australia or do you do any businesses anywhere? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we started SBO Financial to solve bookkeeping initially. So bookkeeping, just getting your accounts in order, is a really undervalued component of what it takes to run a business. So when most people think about bookkeeping, it's like, you know, the receipts that pile up in your top drawer and I need to put them into my QuickBooks so I can give it to my CPA to do my tax return. It's just a chore. It's a commodity type service. But I think there's a really big misconception about bookkeeping. So bookkeeping has a lot of value, although not perceived value, because it underpins the entire financial structure of your business, right? So bookkeeping is essentially building the blocks of data that form your business, right? So without good bookkeeping, you can't understand if you're making money or if you have good cash flow for your company. So the bookkeeping component is really important. And we started SBO initially to solve bookkeeping because we thought it was done quite poorly by a lot of people because a lot of service providers in the market consider bookkeeping as just a compliance driven activity. They do your books every quarter or even annually because you just need it for tax for the IRS to do your tax. But without your bookkeeping, you have no visibility on whether you're making money as a business. So we decided to bring some, some rigor and some systems and structure to bookkeeping to solve the data problem. And that was initially the problem that we were solving. And then as we started working with customers, we learned that, yeah, we got the books done and, and they were accurate. And then they're asking us questions, okay, what does it mean? Or what do I do with this information here? So it's kind of evolved into, well, I don't like the term CFO advisory, but it's kind of that service. So we do the books, you know, we do some reporting, we rip out the KPIs relevant to your business, and we catch up with our customers on a monthly basis to talk about their numbers, basically, and, and keep them informed of how they're performing and helping them drive decision-making using their, their financial data. Now, the customers that we serve largely within a niche in kind of the early stage high growth segment of the market. So people that really are entrepreneurs that really want to engage with numbers and understand they're important. And a lot of them are Australian companies, just given the geography. But we do serve the US market and the UK market as well. And because we're a distributed business, so we're fully online, we've got staff that work everywhere from home or from co-working spaces, it really lends itself to being a global company. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've had to date of your journey? As a new business owner, so I had a bit of a tip chip on my shoulder, to be honest. When I would work as an employee of a, of a firm, I would work for the companies and I would meet some CEOs and some founders. And I'd probably see that some of them were probably not as sharp as they could be. And this is my ego talking right now. I thought that would be smarter, to be honest, <laughs> in terms of be able to be across their business operations. And so going back to the earlier story, you meet some fantastic companies from the outside that are growing and scaling and you meet the people in charge of these companies and you think, wow, how did that guy get there? What are they doing? And like, part of me was like, well, geez, if, if people like that can do it, maybe I can do it because I, you know, the chip in my shoulder was that I thought I was smarter than them. And until you do it yourself, you realize that no, actually, 
I'm a lot dumber than everyone. <laughs> There's a lot I have to learn. So that's one thing where I think you really need to park your ego and really embrace humility and just be, accept what you don't know is what you don't know. And I think the second part of it is initially when we started the company, we wanted to grow and scale it and probably prompt for an exit. So this is my again, corporate advisory hat talking at the moment is that we want to grow it and maybe sell it to a big four accounting firm. And because of these overly ambitious growth targets to make it something of value, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to scale and grow and, and really drive sales and look at all the value metrics associated with growing and scaling. And the pressure that you put on yourself is artificial, right? And so two, two, two and a half years in, I was really starting to get ground down. So I was working 14 hour days, you know, probably six, seven days a week. And I knew I was prepared to do the work, but if you only pull those hours and work that hard for sprints, like you just can't do it in a sustained period. And it got to a point where I was suffering, like frankly. So one Sunday, my business partner and I sat down and we really started to challenge, like, why do we want to grow to this big company? Yeah, fundamentally, why do we want to do this? And we realized that all of the growth targets that we said are just artificial constructs of what we thought was success. And so a big lesson there is, and was what we preach to all of the businesses and even the broader community of, of entrepreneurs, is that really you need to define what success looks like for yourself, not what popular culture deems it to be, because it's really easy to fall into that trap of TechCrunch and all the media, all the big media publications that talk about all these you know, global companies that are dominating and crushing and raising all this money. And it's really easy to be swept up into that world to see what that, what you think success looks like. So really, you yeah, encourage people to just look internally and understand what success looks like for them. And then accordingly design the business or design the lifestyle they want to achieve that success. You're listening to the Meesey Muse Unplugged podcast. We'll be right back after the break. Now available on Amazon. Management consultant and author Christy Lindor shares career secrets based on 15 years of experience working at top firms in a new book called The Meesey Muse. A hundred plus selected practices, unwritten rules and habits of great consultants. The Meesey Muse provides insights, stories and strategies on the unwritten rules of the consulting profession. Christy conducted research and connected with 50-plus industry titans across 27 professional service organizations on what makes a great consultant. For book reviews, tour dates and more info, go to www.mecmuse.us. There's actually a LinkedIn post that you put out there, and you probably don't remember this, Jason, but it's actually you've changed a little bit of my worldview when I think about big four and partnerships. So full disclosure, before my current company, I actually spent the last like six, you know, 12 or so years of my career in big four firms. And I think you posted talking about the partnership model and you compared it to franchising. Yes. <laughs> I remember that distinctly. And it's funny, your post was at a timely point in my career and it really shaped how I think about partnerships at big four firms. Maybe you can share with the go-getters a little bit about that post because I think it's fascinating and it, I think it validates your point about defining success and not just looking at existing constructs. So maybe you can share that point of view again. Yeah, so well, one, why I chose to be an accountant was because I wanted to learn about business, right? So I thought that accounting was a, a really fantastic profession to 
learn about business because you're dealing with business owners, you're across numbers, and I was passionate about finance and um, building wealth. And so those two factors led me to improve after being an accountant. And the longer term objective for me to choose accounting was that I would eventually end up in my own business. So I think as a 14 year old or maybe 13 year old, my long term goal was like, yes, I will be a business owner one day. And being an accountant would be a path to that. But when you're in the accounting firm mold, I lost sight of that. And I lost sight because you are suddenly ingrained in the, the culture and the discipline and uh, almost, I'll call it the rat race, but it's, it's the race, to, it's the path to partner, right? And I know that all large accounting firms have their own methods of how to indoctrinate the grads or the grad program into the system swim lanes where you get, you start as a graduate and you move to accountant and you move to senior accountants and then, you know, associate and then to manager. And see, like there, there is a long, path and there's an org chart and they give you very specific KPIs about what you need to be doing day in, day out to get to the Nirvana or the end game, which is partner, right? And that is a long path for some people. It's a short path for some people who who dedicate their entire life to becoming partner. I'm sure you know a lot of those people, Chrissy, as, as do I. And I met some of these people, some young, ambitious partners. So I know a few people have hit, hit partner at 35 years old and they peaked in their career at you know, PwC or KPMG, these large companies. And they're not any happier, which is, <laughs> I was like, well, you've essentially reached your goal. You know, you're young, you're ambitious, you've got there. And now what? And like, well, you know, I thought that when I was becoming a partner, I'd become essentially a business owner. Actually, I'm still an employee because or yes, although I own equity in this partnership, I don't have any control of what I do with my day. I still have these billable targets I need to do. It really, my KPIs haven't changed. In fact, I've got more responsibility because I'm now responsible for all these revenue targets and whatnot. So I reflected on that. And if you actually take a step back and, and think about the construct of what an accounting firm is, fundamentally, it's just a bunch of people. It's just a firm of people who are very smart, and very good at what they do from a technical perspective. So, um, you look at the tax partnership, you, you've got a, a team of brilliant tax specialists. None of them really are business owners because they don't act like owners. They're actually still acting like employees because they're technicians. So, fundamentally, whoever, I don't know, I assume PwC, as an example, has like a global head office somewhere in the States who is essentially in charge of obviously globally, they're the ones that really act as business owners because their job and their mission is to represent the brand of PwC globally. But all the partners who subscribe to that model are essentially acting like franchisees because they're the revenue generators. And so they work, they do the billables, yes, they've got KPIs, they all contribute to the mothership. So partners in that sense don't really have a lot of strategic control because they're limited to you know what, what their job description is which is bringing money and so you really start to challenge why you want to become a partner i mean if you love doing the work if you love being a technician i'm um, certainly a part a, a partner path is for you but if you're looking for autonomy and control personally i think there are other avenues to do that besides that traditional path yeah, I thought for me that was a, a mic drop moment when I read that post. To your point, you do get indoctrinated once you're in that environment. It becomes kind of all-consuming. And I'm, I'm you know, shout out to all the part. I, I know a ton of different partners at different firms and ama- like you said, amazing people doing amazing things out in the market. But you know, I just never thought of it as that franchisee model until I saw your post and 
it got me thinking and it, it really changed my mindset on it. Cause I'm like, you know what? Jason's actually a thousand percent right. It's very similar. And up until that moment, I didn't think of it that way. So thank you for posting that. I think you've got a lot of thought-provoking posts. So, so go-getters, uh, we'll definitely put Jason's LinkedIn profile in the show notes so that you can check him out and you can follow him too if you want some sage financial advice and just really outside-the-box thinking. Check out Jason and follow him. But no, I, I love that. I love that. Thank you. So let's switch gears a bit. Would love to hear kind of what compelled you to write your book, Start Naked Financials, and tell us what it's about and the typical all MBA questions. What is it about and who's it for? <laughs> awesome. So if you go to your local bookshop, do you buy books on Amazon or do you go to, do you buy them physically? Yeah, I kind and, of I'm like half and half now. Yeah. I mean I love bookshops. Like I, I still love the feel and the smell and I've heard that they're coming there's a bit of a revival happening. I thought they were dead, everyone thought they were dead maybe five years ago. But I love bookshops. And so if you go to the bookshop, I usually just head straight to the business section, business management, entrepreneurship section of the bookshop. And you, know, you see all these covers, you know, looking for your attention. And you know, I'm a very passionate accounting, finance, economics person, just I love that part of business, because it's my profession. So I would always start in that section, just look, I'm just curious what, what people are writing about. And so if you want to learn about management, yeah, sure, there's a brilliant, there's some brilliant books by Simon Sinek and uh, Jim Collins. If you want to learn about marketing, obviously you know, there's our friend Seth Godin. But if you want to learn actually about accounting and finance for business owners, I really struggled to find a really good book on that. I actually couldn't find anything. Now, there's one book, and I'll shout out to Mark McCullowitz, there's a book called Profit First, which I don't know if you've come across that, Christy, but a yeah. lot of, um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people refer to it. I've got that one. It's a really great book, and it's an entertaining read. It's, it's really simple. It's really digestible for, I guess, non-finance people to understand how to manage their cash flow. But what I thought was, it's not, it's not actually accounting. It's not even... Finance. It's just about how to budget your cash with bank accounts, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because it suits a certain type of entrepreneur. But I felt that there was a, an opportunity to write something that probably is for people that start to outgrow that system and really help them engage their numbers in a different way. And so, uh, yeah, I couldn't find the book I wanted to read. So I decided to go down the hard path of writing said book. And now I'm not a writer. Well, I wasn't a writer. And I decided to go down that, that journey and the old MBA for me was a catalyst to that. So that was my P1. It's a set a goal and this, the goal was to write a book on financial literacy for entrepreneurs. And so who's it for? It's entrepreneurs, early stage business owners, specifically probably Gen Y, Gen X founders, anywhere between kind of 25 to 40 who've run a business or they've got a business already and they want to grow it. And numbers is a big blank slash question mark for a lot of people that we work with because no one ever teaches you this at school. Like even at uni, all that you learn about profit losses and balance sheets, but when it comes to like starting a business, there's no way to connect the two, it's, it's theory. So what I try to do is try to talk about accounting and finance from an actual practical lens and, and offer tactics and principles that I've actually learned throughout my own experience being a business owner and learning from my clients about how to actually engage in numbers differently and use them to help you drive decision-making. Because I think that's an enormous opportunity for entrepreneurs specifically to embrace. Because I think as founders or you know, creatives, we often make decisions on gut feel, right? Or emotional whims. And as we know, that's all subject to our cognitive biases of how we're feeling for the day. Have we had coffee? <laughs> Have we eaten? 
And so depending on our mood, those decisions can be heavily influenced. And so numbers really can help ground us and bring an objective reality to sometimes our emotionally charged decision-making processes. So that's the narrative of what's it for. And then it goes into helping entrepreneurs really understand some principles that they can bring to their business from the financial lens. Yeah, you said that, you know, at least you wasn't a writer before. You're listening to the Meesey Muse Unplugged podcast. We'll be right back after the break. What if you can finally launch your own consulting business that gives you the confidence to go after any targeted client and build a profitable business, regardless of your educational background or knowledge? What if you can finally learn how to package your expertise you spent years building into a profitable offering and then wake up every day making a difference with clients that truly value what you can bring to the table as a credible business consultant? Here's the secret, you can. Introducing the Purpose Driven Consultant School. It's an online training and mentoring program designed to help ambitious women and diverse professionals become world-class consultants doing work they love with people they like. Courses are taught by me, Christy Lindor. I come with over 18 plus years of experience working for some of the world's most prestigious management consulting firms. Check us out. We're now enrolling. We have a couple courses coming up on really how to start your business. We kick off our program with a six-week boot camp called Consulting Like a Boss. You can learn more at www.purposedrivenconsultant.com. How was that journey going and, and writing your first book and having to become a writer? Yeah, I really challenging. So some lessons that I learned through that process was me as a person, I'm not really a finisher. I'm more of like an 80% type of guy where I kind of like do 80% of the task, but a book needs to be 100% complete, right? Like there is no 80% of the book because it just doesn't shit. So leading up to that, the hardest part was just committing to building a rhythm of writing because the habit of writing is just like going to the gym. If you want to lose weight, you got to exercise. And so for me, that was like writing a thousand words a day. And it can be crappy, it can be good, whatever, just write a thousand words a day. And so every morning I would get up at seven and just write a thousand words. And so just the habit of writing of a thousand words would try to build me into that, that cadence and rhythm. So that was the first hurdle for me. The second one was I have this really bad habit of self-editing my work. It's really strange. So I would I'd write. And then next morning, instead of like writing a new thousand words, I would actually go back and read my previous thousand words and spend all my time like editing, chopping and changing stuff I already wrote. But obviously I'm not actually creating new content. I'm just refining something that was already bad. So, so I ended up having to like cross out all the work I did or even just write in a completely new Google Doc. So I couldn't actually go back and look at my previous work because that's not creating, I'm just editing. So I had to remove the creator from the editor a lot through the process. And I found that really helped me push through and get the volume. Um, and then I think the final part was just was just mental. And I said before, I wasn't a writer. Now I do consider myself a writer because I need to be a writer. If I'm going to write my next book, if I'm going to write consistently write blog posts, like I need to call myself a writer or else I'm not going to do it. Same thing, I'm an accountant. I need to call myself an accountant because I do accounting work. So there's a quote and I... I'm going to misquote this, but it's basically, if you want to be something, just be it, right? Mm -hmm. Just call yourself that thing and you'll psychologically, you'll just do the work. Yeah. 
When you mentioned being at that bookstore and looking for the accounting version of some of the big thought leaders out there and, and the books that have been really, really successful and realizing that it doesn't exist. And then, you know, you made the decision to then create what you couldn't find, which I think if you think about just that part of the journey, I think there'll probably be about, let's say 80 people that get to that crossroads, maybe five of that 80 will go on that journey. And then out of the five, maybe only one will actually ship a new book, right? So, you know, making the decision is one, but then being able to actually execute on it and finish it is a whole other element. So I commend you for hitting those milestones and, and pushing through and persevering. What advice would you give others who find themselves in a similar situation that you were? You know, whether they're at a bookstore or they're at a retail store and they see an open opportunity, they see a gap in the market. What advice would you give them to make this decision, but then push forth? I think there's two parts to this question. So the first question I would ask is, why is there a book there? Like, why isn't this niche or this market filled? And I think asking the why question will unearth the question of, does it need to be written? So I think like entrepreneurship, right, is like there's a gap in the market. So why is it? Is it because someone hasn't tried this before or is it because something's to the market shifted? So ask yourself why there isn't. And then second, if you've done the testing and you believe that, yes, there is a legitimate gap, the second part of it is uh, ask yourself and why the person to do it. I and mean, I think that's a really loaded question. I, I'm in two frames of this part because I've been to a few like marketing conferences where people say that, you know, marketing 101, you want to build a personal brand, you should write a book, right? And it's like, I completely understand the strategy and the tactics behind that work. But at the same time, the reason to write a book shouldn't be to elevate your brand, right? And, and the, I know it's controversial with this statement, but I think in this land, in this world where we're so much crap content where getting on the front page of Google is literally hacking SEO. I think that the reason why you want to do a project is because you're deeply passionate about it. And it's like an irrational passion, right? Because that irrational passion will get you to finish it. If you're doing something because you want to lift profile or you want to get more likes or you want to make more sales, I don't think that's the right reason to pursue something like a book because you won't finish it if that's the objective. And so I really ask yourself, am I really that motivated? I do have the passion to do it. And if you want to embark on that process, great. Work out who, what resource, what assets you need to help you get there. And the best thing I ever did was get a coach. So to write my book, I've worked very closely with an old MBA alumni, Fred, who you know, acted as my editor, but more as a coach. And he helped me through the process. So surround yourself with people that can help you on the journey if you want to get through. Because as Seth Godin said in the dip, if you're not going to get to the end, like why even start, right? So you need to commit and just make sure you've got the right assets and the people around you to get you through the dip and to the end. Yeah, I didn't know you were working with Frederick. Shout out to, to Frederick Hagen. He's actually, I'm working with him on my third book. Oh, awesome. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so, so, so go get it. Yeah, we're going to put out the link for Frederick as well in his service. He's been awesome to work with. My first couple books, I, I've worked with some all MBA grads. So the first two I worked with, Alicia Ingram, and, and shout out to Alicia. I'll put her link out there. But yeah, I'm working with him, so it's been really cool. So that's good to know. That's, that's very good to know that you worked with them. <laughs> there you go. Before we wrap up this episode, I mentioned to you that this season we're focused on the science of success. And I have the question of the day for you. Are you ready? 
Yeah. Okay. So how can you feel successful in the wake of a perceived failure? I'm a really big fan of the tactic of reframing things, right? So I always like to see the world in opportunity cost. So if I do something, what is the opportunity cost of not doing it? And so when it comes to decision making, usually that's how I think about taking on new projects or even new clients, is that if I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? Now, I think we can apply that same tactic to perceived failures. If this thing doesn't work, you reframe it and think, well, what did I learn from it? Because essentially, there is no such thing as a failure. It's an opportunity to learn something new. Without failing, I didn't know what that thing looks like in the first place. So I think just reframing the problem and just reflecting on what did I take away from that experience or that lesson sets you up for the next thing. Love your response to that. Last question. This is not as as deep. Uh, I don't, well, I don't think it's as deep. What is a fun fact about you that people cannot Google? Oh, this is a a good one. Fun fact about me is I've been to North Korea, but I haven't been to South Korea. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so when you were, like, you say you've been there, like, like, have you been at the, like, what is it, the DMZ? Or have you been, like, in the country? Well, I've been in the country. I was just, like, a seven-day tour type thing. Yeah, hanging out and uh, yeah, just checking out the country, basically, yeah, as a what, tourist. Was it everything you, you thought it would be or was it surprising being there? The best way I could describe North Korea, it was basically Disneyland for adults. And I say that because everything is, you know, it's fake. Like everything, you go there, the everything, the streets are perfectly clean. All the buildings are built symmetrically like they've got this really nice architecture all the grounds are really well kept hedges are trimmed everything's beautiful lots of flowers it's a really beautiful Pyongyang rather the city enormous statues and lots of paintings and murals it's like a utopia but you know it's fake because you know the truth right and that's why I call it like the Disneyland's like Disneyland is also built like that but you know it's fake because it's not the real world and so I didn't have any expectations going in because I tried to remove any bias. I just wanted to get, I guess, an independent view of it. But the reality was our tour guide was someone from the government and they probably only showed us the things that they wanted us to see and everything looked nice. So <laughs> if I didn't know the truth, I would say that Pyongyang and North Korea is a beautiful country, but deep down we know what the reality is. I think you're the first person I know that's actually been there. <laughs> It's funny, my mom has been to South Korea. She spent time there, but I've, I've never met anyone that's been in North Korea, I can tell you. Yeah, I recommend everyone to, to go there once just to experience what it's like and just help contextualize what's in the media all the time. Right, right. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for being on today's show. If people wanted to find you online, how could they connect with you? LinkedIn's probably probably actually the only social media channel I use at the moment. So LinkedIn, just search Jason Andrew. And I'll be there. And uh, yeah, just shoot me a DM if you want to chat. And, uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the Me Me's Unplugged today. It was awesome. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Christy, for the opportunity. That concludes today's show. I want to thank my guests for being with us today. And thank you, my go-getters, for tuning in. There are hundreds and thousands of podcasts out there, and I'm so glad that you've chosen the Meesey Muse Unplug to connect with. So make sure you check out today's show notes. You can go to www.meeseymuse.com for more information. Please feel free to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, and rate it. Until next time, 
here's to your journey to greatness. Tune in for new episodes every Monday to kick off your week of greatness. Visit us online at misimuse.com for more information. Don't forget to follow Misi Muse on all socials to stay tuned in for upcoming episodes and news from Christy Lindor.